Hello friends, it's Bill Allen. Nice to see you or nice to have you see me. Hopefully you're seeing this and hearing this. Looking forward to another great uh, study today, not because the teacher is great, but because uh, the words are great that we get to study. And today is going to be the central uh, story of Scripture, uh, the death and burial of Christ along with this Thursday where that central story will have its uh, culminating point, and that is in, in the resurrection. So welcome to all. Glad to have you along for the ride. If you're here, then go ahead and give me a shout out. I may respond uh, with a word or two of greeting if I see it. I may not. Uh, typically in my um, IT challenged uh, framework, I'm, I've got about all I can do just to keep myself on the screen and to keep my, uh, my lesson intact. But at any rate, uh, hopefully uh, we'll have several watching live and also we'll have several that we'll watch in the, in the days ahead. Uh, these uh, lessons on the book of Matthew can be seen uh, on my Facebook page. They can be seen on our uh, West Irwin Church of Christ Facebook page and they can also be seen uh, after a while on our archives uh, in our West Irwin uh, .org um, website. Actually, it's westerwin.com website, and so hopefully you'll be able to uh, take part in some of those. So it's nice to see that I've got a few joining in. My old buddy, old pal Doug Sifford, uh, my dear friend Lonnie Brown from here, right here in Tyler, a wonderful uh, disciple of Christ who continues to serve at our local elementary school that uh, our church has kind of adopted and very active part of our church family. Um, and of course, Lenny and Joe Allard, the, uh, another uh, uh, a new great-granddaughter uh, added to their fold of late. Congratulations to Rebecca and to all of your family. And another one coming up, I believe, uh, before too very long. And so uh, what, a, what a joy uh, that continuation and extension of life uh, is. I'm very grateful uh, to have you all here and to have you as a part of, as a part of this study. Um, we are in the book of Matthew. We will finish up, as I said, this week. And today begins um, uh, the very difficult story of the betrayal and the, um, and the arrest and the denials and the abandonment and the conviction and the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. So we've got a good group here. Hello to uh, Cindy and Eric. Glad to have y'all. Love y'all so much. Miss seeing you. Hopefully we'll be able to do that again uh, sometime soon. Our church family is, um, uh, is meeting uh, at, uh, at our church building and has, uh, this was our third Sunday, but we have discouraged those in that 65 and over group those who have uh, health uh, issues, such as my wife, that makes them vulnerable to uh, having real difficulty with this uh, COVID-19 and, um, and any others that are showing symptoms or just feel like they are not ready to, to come yet and to worship online with us. Thankfully, we've been able to do that. Uh, but uh, we have seen a few more coming uh, each week. And uh, I know that uh, that will just uh, continue to increase as it does for everyone else. And we continue to pray that our Lord will bless us as we uh, fight through this uh, novel coronavirus of 2019 and 2020. Um, so with all of that in mind, let's uh, continue with our study of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapters 26 and 27 today. The great uh, story of the resurrection, Matthew 28, as we finish our study on Thursday. And I can tell you, I think I might have mentioned last week, but I will tell you because, you know, I'm 63 years old, so I don't remember what I've said. Uh, but what I will say this time is that I want to continue these studies uh, through the summer on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 4 p.m. Central Daylight Time, uh, starting uh, the first Tuesday in June, which I think is June the 2nd. Uh, next week, one week from today, we will uh, begin a study of the book of Acts and uh, look at Acts of Apostles and uh, Acts of uh, the Holy Spirit and the Church, I think is my favorite title of the book of Acts. Uh, but we're just going to go one chapter at a time through that, and so we'll be able to finish that out as we go throughout the summer. And I hope that you'll invite someone to watch it with you or to, to kind of be able to distance watch it together. I tell people that as they're 
uh, as they've been watching our sermons and, and services online, that they should uh, text their friends uh, and family members if they're not uh, being able to watch it together. Because, you know, they whisper during my sermon anyway, so they might as well text each other while I'm preaching. And that will be great. I love that. I think that's terrific. Uh, so maybe you can do that with someone and invite them to study along with us as we look at uh, that great book of Acts and the incredible uh, growth and, uh, at the beginning uh, years of the church and also that growth that was accompanied by persecution and difficulty. Um, there's nothing in Scripture that says God's people will always be happy. There's nothing in Scripture that says God's people will always have things go their way. Uh, in this life, uh, all that's mentioned in Scripture is that if we are obedient to Christ and His Word and His will for us, uh, that, that He'll see us through, and that it may be difficulty and we may... Uh, have to wait until the other side of uh, eternity to be able to to uh, uh, see that vindication and uh, that blessing. But he will be blessing us in the meantime with his presence. This great gospel of Matthew ends with that exact promise. Uh, Jesus himself saying at the end of Matthew 28, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That doesn't mean that everything's going to go our way. That doesn't mean we're always going to be happy. That doesn't mean that uh, we're always going to see things work out the way the world measures those kinds of things. It just means that God is going to be with us no matter what uh, happens. And so hopefully uh, we'll be able to establish that and be able to go on forward uh, as we seek to serve Him, just like Matthew talks about in this gospel uh, that speaks of the King and His kingdom. So with all of that, let's get started in Matthew 26, beginning at verse 1, and uh, we'll just kind of read through these, uh, Matthew, these chapters of Matthew 26 and 27 and make some comments as well along the way. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Uh, I'm not sure how well they knew that. <laughs> they tried to talk him out of it. They tried to talk him out of going to Jerusalem. They tried to convince him that, that uh, this kind of thing should never happen to him. And each time, Jesus just continually reminds them, look, this is my mission. I'm here. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be accused and convicted and will be crucified. But on the third day, I will rise again. And yet when all of these things happened, it was as if they were completely shocked and surprised by it. I doubt that I would have been any different uh, because this is not what they anticipated Messiah would be nor what I would have anticipated if I lived on the, 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 uh, the before Christ time as they did. Um, then the chief priests, verse 3 of Matthew 26, the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Interestingly, they don't say, but we shouldn't do this because it's not right. Or we shouldn't do this because uh, he's innocent. Uh, or we shouldn't do this because it's just a power play on our, our part, and I think God knows that. None of those things came up. It was just, well, we shouldn't do this during the festival, during the Passover, because there have been times when a lot of people followed him, and we don't want a rebellion. We don't want a riot. Um, sadly, that was the thing that they were mostly concerned about. And so this, this tells us the need for Judas Iscariot. You see, they needed to find a way to, to get Jesus at a place and time when the crowds wouldn't be around and they would know that it would be safe to arrest him. And that's where they needed insider information. And so when Judas goes to him, as we're going to find out, there were just so many things about Jesus and his life and ministry and teaching that that obviously upset Judas and upset a lot of the others as well um, because his kingdom was not of this world and they didn't get that. Um, they, Because of that, ultimately Judas goes to the religious leaders, to the Jewish leaders, and offers uh, to hand Jesus over to them for uh, money. And ultimately that is exactly, unfortunately, uh, for Jesus, fortunately for all of the rest of humanity, that's exactly uh, what happens. So we keep uh, reading in Matthew chapter 26, uh, beginning in verse 6, about these events that lead up to the Last Supper and ultimately um, the uh, arrest of Jesus. 
While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, also Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in Bethany. Um, this event that we're about to read about uh, seems to be the same one that is described uh, in Mark 14, and also in John chapter 12, where Mary is named as the one who anoints him. Um, was it at their home? Was it at the home of this Simon the leper? It seems to be at the home of Simon. Uh, but Mary and Martha, Martha acted as hostess, as she typically would do. And uh, except this time, uh, as you read the account in John 12, this time Martha doesn't complain to Jesus that Mary isn't helping. Uh, doesn't complain to Jesus that of what uh, Mary is doing in uh, offering up this uh, act of worship, this spontaneous act of worship and gratitude to Jesus. Could very well be because it is to demonstrate great appreciation uh, for uh, his uh, teaching, his acceptance, uh, his friendship. Um, certainly, if it occurs after uh, the resurrection of Lazarus, as best we can tell it does, then uh, uh, thankfulness to Jesus for the fact that their brother is still alive. Um, so, uh, while Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Uh, one other instance of Jesus having uh, an anointing or a, a washing uh, of his feet and uh, drying with, his, with this woman's hair is a sinful woman described in Luke chapter 7 at the home of another Simon, not a, a, a man who uh, was a leper that obviously perhaps Jesus had healed, as in this case, but rather Simon the Pharisee, one of the religious leaders who... Um, doesn't even see the woman that comes to Jesus and see, doesn't see her heart, uh, but Jesus does in Luke chapter 7. I think that's a different instance than the others that are described. Verse 8, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Really? Really? That's what you guys are upset about because money couldn't be given to the poor? Come on. Well, we know that at least one of them, Judas, was upset and was not upset because it was being given to the poor. In other places, it's said that Judas was especially upset because he was the treasurer of the bunch. And as treasurer, he would pocket some of the money. And so again, this infuriates some of them and certainly infuriates um, Jesus. Just as the religious leaders were not concerned about the woman who had been accused of adultery or the law that's described in John 8 there they were only concerned with trapping Jesus in this case the disciples I find it hard to believe that they're very concerned about the poor they're more concerned about um, about this money that it could have been spent better elsewhere and I think this whole event speaks uh, very soundly to us about what we value do we value money do we value worship? Uh, do we value benevolence? Um, what do we value? Aware of this, Matthew 26, verse 10, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, verse 11, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And that certainly came to pass because it's included in the gospels what this woman did, what Mary did. Jesus makes that incredible statement in Matthew 26, verse 11, the poor you will always have with you. And we get that. Our church is a downtown church in Tyler, Texas. Um, we have a lot of people who have great physical needs in our and right in our own neighborhood. And we try to help. A good portion of our budget goes to helping in benevolent ways. Our own members, others that we come in contact with, our neighbors uh, who have trouble, maybe homeless, who may be uh, looking for a meal or clothing, uh, and, and we do our best to help. And the truth is we could give 100% of our budget to help the poor, and there would still be poor left over that we couldn't afford to help, but then our church would no longer exist after a short while. 
And so I think what Jesus is saying here is, and he says in other places, no doubt, just as he did in Matthew 25 in the parables about the end of the world, the sheep and the goats, how important it is to help the poor and to, and to be benevolent. We get that. But what Jesus says here is that's not, that's not as important as that is. There are other concerns as well. And in this case, worship. This is a direct act of worship. And I can tell you, worship is one of the most wasteful things we do. You think of, oh, couldn't that time spent in church be better off being spent helping someone rebuild their house or um, sitting with someone and praying at the, at the hospital uh, or uh, doing something that would be of assistance uh, to someone? And those are legitimate points. And those are all good things. But what we forget is that worship is a good thing too, even though it seems like it's a total waste of time if you look at it on the surface. But that's, that's really what worship, direct worship is. It's focusing on God and honoring God with everything that we have and everything that we are. And rather than doing anything else with that time, rather than doing anything else with that energy, rather than doing anything else with those financial resources. In the eyes of the world, worship is a waste. But in the eyes of God, and in the eyes of his people, worship is absolutely essential. This woman's worship was absolutely essential. She did it out of a heart of gratitude. She didn't do it so that others would see her or talk about her or praise her. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, we're not to do. She did it because of love. She did it because she genuinely felt appreciation and devotion to Jesus. And that's the motivation for our worship uh, today. The disciples tried to talk Jesus out of accepting it, and Jesus said, no, 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 no. This is the right thing to do. And he says, she's preparing me for my burial. Uh, it's coming, guys. You don't get it still, but it's coming. Um, so we continue uh, reading um, in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Apparently, this waste was the last straw for Judas. And he said, that's it. I'm done with this guy. And, uh, and sold him out. Sold him out. That brings us to the Last Supper. Not the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was instituted in the days of the church, which didn't begin until in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. But it's based on this, the Last Supper that Jesus has with his disciples. Is it a Passover meal? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to indicate that. Uh, John, however, seems to indicate that, well, m maybe, maybe not. Um, in John chapter 18, verse 28, as Jesus is being tried by the Jewish leaders and they want to go to Pilate so that he'll have him crucified, they don't go in. And the reason they don't go in and ask Pilate to come out, John says, is so that they won't be unclean and can still observe the Passover. Well, I'll let you chase that one down a little bit. There are a couple of possibilities. One is there were different date ways of, of uh, dating the calendar. The Jews had calendar differences, and so it could be that. Another uh, possibility is that what Jesus and his disciples observe here is one of those uh, fellowship meals that goes along with the Passover um, and Jewish life. I, I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are, make it very clear that they were observing the Passover uh, in this meal. Um, and so uh, we certainly see a lot of Passover elements in it, and we see some Passover elements uh, in the Lord's Supper, but it's not the same. It's different. It's different. Uh, they did it once a year. We do it every first day of the week to celebrate what we'll talk about on Thursday the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But still very appropriate for us to consider. And uh, so let's read about it. On, in Matthew 26, verse 17, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the Passover, uh, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Remember, this is done to remember that great deliverance uh, that God had in the days of Moses from the uh, Egyptian bondage that the Israelites had suffered in. 
He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, verse 20, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And that, those words had to have dropped like a lead weight in that room. Um, they were very sad, verse 22, and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And I imagine Judas said exactly the same thing. Because remember the amazing thing, Judas is still here at this time. John 13, John tells us much more about this Last Supper in those chapters from John 13 to John 17 and about the discussion that Jesus had with his apostles at this very special time. And it begins with washing of the feet, but it's Jesus who takes the role of servant or slave and washes the disciples' feet, including Judas. He hadn't left yet. And he's there still now. Jesus replied, verse 23, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. And I think Judas knew who, who it was, but he had to keep this lark going so that the other disciples wouldn't suspect him. Um, and again, this fulfills everything that had been said about what the Messiah would do, and yet that wasn't the Messiah they were expecting. Sometimes it's not the Messiah that we expect either. Verse uh, 26, these familiar words that many of us read every, almost every Sunday. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. In Luke's version of the Last Supper, Luke describes, uh, Luke kind of throws us a curve because Luke begins with a cup and then goes to the bread and then goes to another cup. Uh, and that kind of throws us off. And if you're leading a communion meditation and you haven't done your homework and you start reading from Luke 22, uh, it's going to be a little bit confusing for you. Um, but we understand that the Passover had actually four uh, shared cups during the Passover observance. And so we see Luke describing two of those, Matthew and Mark describing uh, one of those, and Jesus applying a whole different meaning and application to it now. In the kingdom, Jesus says, you're going to do these things in remembrance of me and to remember uh, my body that's broken for you as you partake of that bread and my blood that was shed for you and poured out for you as you drink uh, from that cup. It's a very special time. It's a very important time. Acts 20 verse 7 indicates to us that the, the first century church observed it every single Sunday uh, because Paul meant to do that. And as he was traveling uh, in Acts 20 and found himself at Troas, he found where the disciples were meeting. And on the first day of the week, they met together so that they could share communion. The word communion is the word koinonia. We translate it most of the time fellowship. But it's that idea of sharing, of communing together. Uh, and that gives us the one another aspect, the horizontal aspect of the Lord's Supper that the church at Corinth was breaking in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, in that chapter, Paul doesn't condemn them for not thinking of the resurrected body of Christ or the broken body of Christ on the cross. It's the body of Christ, the church, that they had neglected, according to 1 Corinthians 11 and had strong condemnation from the apostle. The Lord's Supper reminds us of this historical connection with uh, Jesus and his apostles and the, the vertical aspect of remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, some have called it the Eucharist, which is a term of thanksgiving, which is also used in the Gospels as it describes Jesus, the giving of thanks. That's that term. Uh, and it helps us to remember the great histor history of uh, the Lord's Supper and how, 
how people through the centuries have died um, because they took their chances to partake of that Lord's Supper and uh, were killed for it. Um, it's a great uh, reminder to us today of what it means to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus obediently. Um, and, uh, and so we try to do that. What a great blessing for us today that we can share in the Lord's Supper together, even in a pandemic, and have individual uh, pieces of bread and individual cups to try to uh, keep us from spreading this horrible disease, and to be able to have online services where we can be together and connected even still, uh, even though we're apart. We look forward to the time when we can freely handshake and hug and be together. But in the meantime, what a great blessing uh, we have uh, today. So Jesus does all of that and reminds them of uh, the important things that are going to uh, go on. And they sing a hymn and then they leave and they go out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus told them in Matthew 26, verse 31, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. There's a great passage in Luke 22, uh, verses 31 and 32, about a little bit more interaction between Jesus and Peter. Because Jesus tells him, oh, Peter... Simon, Simon, that time when he repeats his name for emphasis, uh, Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And when you come back, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Um, it's a preview of what Jesus does in John uh, 21 as he, as he tries to encourage Peter, having uh, been at his lowest point, to tell him, look, I, I still... I'm forgiving you, Peter. I still have a job for you, Peter, and I want you to feed my sheep. In this case, Peter is still the big-talking guy, but after um, denying him three times, that scenario changes a bit. Um, and then we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, beginning in verse 36 of Matthew 26, also seen in Mark and in Luke. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, James and John, James the first apostle who would be killed for the faith, according to Acts chapter 12, and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This inner three that went with him a little farther and, and saw the, Mount, the transfiguration, uh, saw him raise a, a girl from the dead. Here they go farther into the garden with him. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. This is a very emotional time uh, for Jesus. And Matthew records it that way. Uh, Mark uh, says this in Mark 14. He was deeply distressed and troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Uh, Luke says in Luke 22, his sweat was like drops of blood. Um, and so Jesus uh, goes a little farther in verse 39. Uh, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Clearly, clearly Jesus sought another way than this. And I think Jesus is saying here, oh, Father, I don't, I don't want to do this. If there's any other way, please don't. Don't make me do this. And that's such a far cry from us today who it seems like we seek uh, not the Father's will, as Jesus would say, not my will but yours be done. That's not our prayer so many times today. Our prayer is, dear God, I want you to make your will my will. I want to do what I want. I don't want to do what doesn't make me happy. If this, is, if this makes, will make me happy, then I want it to be your will. And we've we can't find that teaching anywhere in Scripture. What Scripture tells us is if we're going to be his disciple, we have to deny ourselves, not indulge ourselves. We have to take up our own crosses, not try to find our, our own way in whatever way will make us happy, and follow him. 
This is where Jesus was, praying to the Father, take this cup from me, and yet not what I want, but what you want, I will go by. And, and this, this Son of God, this Holy of Holies, this righteous man, um, the Father heard that prayer, but he answered no. He answered no to his own son. Um, sometimes it's not what we want that, that God uh, gives us. It's what he wants. It's what is best perhaps for someone else rather than ourselves. It's what is accordance to his will. And, and certainly what is accordance, uh, in accordance with his purpose and his mission. Not just for us right now at this moment, but for us for eternity and for others for eternity. That's God's main concern. His main concern is not that I be happy at this moment right now, the way the world measures happiness. If that were the case, then Jesus would have never been in this moment. He would have never been crucified. Uh, Paul would never have suffered for the faith. He would never have been beaten. He would never have been imprisoned. Um, none of the things that Scripture talks about would have happened because God doesn't measure it the way we measure it. He measures it with true and lasting and eternal joy, not happiness that's based on feelings and current situation. God sees far past that. And for us to be pleasing to him, we must as well. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping, Matthew 26, verse 40. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that's our story so much of the time. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Three times, three times. Jesus went further into the garden to share and open up his heart to his father. How it must have broken his father's heart to hear his son plead for his life and the answer to come back now. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? <laughs> Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The hour has come. Throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus had said, my time is not right. My time is not here. My hour has not yet come. Now the hour has come. The hour has come. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him, betrayed by a kiss. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend, and his, how his heart must have broken. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. We know from other accounts that it was Peter, and we know that it was Malchus was the name of this man. But Jesus' reaction is important. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. This is the world's reaction, Peter, Jesus might have said. It's not my kingdom's reaction. Do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple uh, teaching, and you did not arrest me in the temple courts. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Jesus would tell Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, My kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. I don't fight like you fight. I don't hurt like you hurt. I don't suffer like you suffer. I do those things in a physical way. But in the spiritual kingdom, we don't do this by, uh, with clubs and swords and spears and guns and bombs. We don't do this uh, by calling 12 legions of angels down. 
which Jesus could have done at any moment and saved himself from his fate. Just as he could have done it at the very beginning when Satan tempted him and said, jump down off the temple here and the angels will protect you. That's not why Jesus came. He came for this moment. He came to give his life. Why? Because there was something more important than his happiness at this moment. There was something more important than even his life at this moment. It was your life. It was my life. And so now we look at Jesus' um, trials as he goes before uh, the Jewish leaders, the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, uh, this group of elders and uh, priests and the high priest, uh, Caiaphas and Annas, uh, serving uh, in, at that time. And Peter following at a distance. <laughs> and we know that throughout the rest of this account, we will hear about his uh, denials. Uh, the chief priests, verse 59, and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. None of the stories would stick until Jesus finally gives himself away. The high priest says in verse 63, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of the heavens. And that's all it took. The high priest and the others say, we don't need any more evidence. We don't need to trump up any charges. This is enough because it's blasphemy. And it's true. It would be blasphemy unless Jesus really were the Son of God, which he was and which he is. And so they accuse him of blasphemy, although he's not guilty of that charge. But he's certainly guilty of calling himself the Son of God. And so they all say he has spoken blasphemy, verse 65. We don't need any more witnesses. Verse 66, he is worthy of death. Then they spit in his face and strike him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? And it's that kind of abuse, physical and emotional and spiritual abuse, that they are going to attack him with until they finally take his life. Verses 69 through 75 tell us the story of Peter disowning Jesus. And we're very familiar with this story. On three different occasions, someone comes to him and asks him, aren't you one of his disciples? Aren't you one of his followers? And each time Peter calls on oaths and denies it and denies it and denies it. And finally, in verse 74, the rooster crows. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And one of the amazing things in Luke's uh, version, in Luke's uh, story, accounting the denial of Jesus, is that Luke records that when that rooster crowed the third time, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Across the courtyard, away from where uh, he was, somehow or another, their eyes were able to meet. And how Peter must have always remembered that look on Jesus' face the hurt in his eyes. We need to remember that same look because of all the times that we have failed him. And it reminds us to approach him with great humility and to approach others with great humility as fellow sinners, but also to approach Jesus with great, great gratitude because he goes through all of this for us. That leads us to um, Matthew 27. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Why not just stone him like they would ultimately Stephen, the first Christian martyr in Acts chapter 6 and 7? Well, the reason is, is because they didn't just want to stone him. They want him crucified. They wanted him to experience the curse, as the Old Testament says, of being hung on a tree. They wanted everyone to know Jew and non-Jew alike, that this man was not who he said he was because they wanted to save their own power. That was their main concern. And so they turned Jesus over. And Judas, in verses 3 and following, he tries to give the money back. He goes back to the temple and tries to give them their money, and, and they won't take it. So he throws it into the temple where they are and to where they were meeting. And then he goes off and he hangs himself. 
And the Jews, it's interesting, the Jewish leaders are so concerned about following the law of Moses that they can't use this money, it's blood money, so they can't use it for the general treasury. So they, they put it towards buying a field where they can uh, bury individuals that have no one to bury them. They have no conscience when it comes to convicting Jesus and having him killed. But when it comes to how to spend money, they do. What a horrible, horrible commentary. Uh, Peter goes out and weeps bitterly because of his denying Christ. Judas goes out and hangs himself. Both of them had remorse. Both of them were sorrowful. But Judas didn't have that godly sorrow that Paul would talk about in 2 Corinthians 7 that leads to repentance and seeks forgiveness. Um, but Peter did. And amazingly enough, he is forgiven. Jesus calling him to continue in ministry in John 21, saying, feed my sheep. Peter ultimately speaking out, even when the church is first meeting after the resurrection and ascension, speaking out about how they have to replace Judas. And ultimately it is Simon Peter that Luke records in that first gospel sermon in the name of the resurrected Christ in Acts chapter 2. Peter's story is our story. It's our story. Meanwhile, verse 11 of Matthew 27, Jesus stood before the governor, the Roman governor Pilate, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Now there's a lot more in this interaction <laughs> that we can read about in John 18 and 19 as Jesus goes back and forth with Pilate. Matthew doesn't record much of it. Uh, John in his gospel records uh, so much more in John 18 uh, and 19. Uh, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you have said so. Uh, and, and that's when Jesus and Pilate go back and forth about Jesus saying, my kingdom is not of this world. And, and Pilate saying, so you are a king then, I got you. And Jesus says, yeah, but it's not like you. It's no threat to your kingdom, actually. But it is a threat to you being on the throne of people's hearts. Uh, that much is certainly true. Uh, and so Jesus would tell Pilate, look, <laughs> I, if, if I wanted to fight you on your terms, I could fight and win, but that's not, that's not why we're here. The people who are on the side of truth, John records, Jesus saying, will listen to me. And Pilate, in the words of a politician, just like so many today, uh, having lost their way, lost that standard of integrity and honesty and truth, would ask that great, great question in response to Jesus, what is truth? Jesus had said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We speak today, we hear the question asked, what is your truth? If that's the case, then we're free to do whatever we feel like is true, <laughs> whatever will make us happy, whatever we want to do, because that's not the truth, that is my truth. That wouldn't have gotten Jesus killed. It wouldn't have caused the early disciples to be persecuted. And if we abide by it today, it will bring us hardship many times. It will cause difficulties in some relationships because we will hold to the truth and try to, imperfectly, yes, but, but try faithfully to abide by what we understand is the truth. God's word is truth, Jesus said in his prayer in John 17. Now it was the governor's custom in verse 15 at the festival to release a prisoner uh, chosen by the crowd. And at that time, there was a man by the name of Barabbas. And, and Luke, uh, uh, we find that he was guilty of insurrection, of rebellion against the, the empire, against the state, and murder, and murder. And so Pilate, you know, he's a good politician. He says, oh, I see a way that I can get out of this. I can release this innocent man, and I can also save face with the Jewish leaders. 
And so he says, well, let's, let's do what, you always, what we always do around the Passover, and I'll release one of the prisoners. How about I release this guy that you have called the king of the Jews? And they say, no, 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 we want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. I believe it's Max Lucado who uh, writes about this, perhaps in Six Hours One Friday, or uh, no wonder they call him the Savior, one of those early books, as he talks about this scene at the cross and in uh, the trials and and asks us to to find where we are uh, and uh, we would be one of the disciples who runs for his life or denies him like peter did we would be one of those crowds who shouts for his blood but truly who we really are is barabbas we're the one who should have died that day and yet we're the one that was set free um so when Pilate knew that it was out of control in verse 18, for his own self-interest, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. Uh, John tells us that the crowd started saying, look, this man says he's a king. Anybody who is his friend is no friend of Caesar's. And in John's account, that's when Pilate goes and sits at the official place to make the judgment and says, guilty, worthy, of death by crucifixion. Um, even though his wife, Matthew would record, had sent him a message, this man is innocent, don't have anything to do with him, and Pilate tried, and he tried to wash his hands, but the blood of Christ couldn't come off. And he convicts him anyway. Um, so they kept shouting in verse 23, crucify him, crucify him and call on his blood to be on themselves and on their children, this arrogant people that were stirred up in this mob mentality uh, that had lost all sense of honesty and integrity and truth, had lost all sense of control, and now were letting their emotions of the moment completely rule the day. And the end result is an innocent man is, is put to death. Um, Jesus is flogged and handed over to be crucified in verse 26, and Barabbas is released. But that doesn't, uh, that doesn't stop the mocking. The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, into the guard area, verse 27, and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. In other accounts, Pilate hears that he's from Galilee and he sends him over to Herod and Herod doesn't want anything to do with him either and Jesus doesn't give Herod any respect doesn't perform any sign doesn't make any response and Herod's soldiers do the same kinds of things that Pilate's soldiers do and then send him back uh, to Pilate and still uh, still there is no vindication for Jesus no one to stand up for him no one uh, to prove that he is innocent even though he was. And we're reminded of Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed, healed. The punishment that should have been upon us was upon him. And that's exactly what happened. As painful and horrible a death as crucifixion is, remember the pain and the horror of being beaten, being flogged with this, not just a whip, but a whip that had shards in it, a metal or something. Um, of being uh, this crown of thorns stuffed onto his head. How painful even just that must have been. Um, and yet Jesus took it all, and he took it all for you, and he took it all for me. And then the crucifixion of Jesus, which I'd like uh, to just read, starting in verse 32 of Matthew 27. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. In, uh, in Italian, in Latin rather, it is Calvary. 
There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, that curtain that separates the most holy place from everything else. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus', after Jesus resurrection, you notice, and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. This wasn't like any other death assignment that they had carried out. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Matthew doesn't give us all the things that Jesus said from the cross, nor does any of the four gospel writers, but between the four of them, we see that there are seven things, seven words from the cross that Jesus shares. The one Matthew does include, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. And read that psalm, the 22nd psalm, and I believe that Jesus had that whole psalm, the psalm of suffering, but the psalm of deliverance in his heart and on his mind at that moment. I thirst, Jesus said, again reminding us of his great humanity. He would call on John to take care of his mother as he saw them both near his cross. Uh, and what a special moment that was. Uh, he prays to, um, he, he talks to the thief. Matthew doesn't record the righteous thief, but but we hear that story of Jesus forgiving that one thief who uh, seemed to repent and who called on uh, Jesus to remember him when he comes in his kingdom. And Jesus would tell him, today you will be with me in paradise. And then we hear the words that only Luke records, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. An amazing, amazing statement. Jesus did what we must do with those who sin against us, and that's let them go. And the pain and the suffering and the anger, let it go and turn it over to the Father. That's what Jesus did that day. And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's what we must do. We must commit each day our spirit, our lives over to God. And then finally, those thundering words that Jesus quietly, softly, likely whispered with his dying breaths, it is finished. And it was. His life was over, but our lives were just to begin. The writer of Hebrews would say Jesus would die once for all so that we might live. Uh, that great passage in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. Um, Jesus is killed. And uh, I hear these words. Uh, we think of ourselves, what would we do? Would we try to save him? Would we be on his side? I, I doubt it. And I think the writer of the song, How Deep the Father's Love, captures it so well in that second verse. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. I am in that bloodthirsty crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. That's why Jesus came. That's why he lived. That's why he taught. That's why he died. Because that was you and I. We were the ones there calling for his blood. We are the ones refusing to be obedient we are the ones relying totally on that blood to save us. And now it has. And now we are the ones who have been raised out of the watery grave of baptism, having died to sin, buried with Christ through baptism into death, as Romans 6 says, and raised to live a new life. Now we live a life not perfect, but one that honors Christ by seeking to be worthy not earning this great gift and the high, high price it was paid, but just seeking to live a life that honors what Jesus did for us by seeking to be obedient and to live uh, to remember that Jesus died. Um, the passage continues on at the end of Matthew 27 and talks about Jesus' burial. And we know from this account, and we also know from John's account, that it, wasn't, it was Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council and who had not taken part in the decision to have Jesus killed, who had a tomb of his own nearby. And so he went to Pilate and asked for permission to take the body down. And uh, we know that uh, they were a little concerned that Jesus was already dead, um, but they, threw, they stuck a spear through his side. And out came blood and water, and it was surely true that Jesus had died. And so we also hear from John that Nicodemus, another member of the Jewish ruling council, a man who had come to Jesus at night in John 3, who had been told, Nicodemus, unless you are born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, who had very sheepishly uh, and fearfully at the end of John 7 had had called out to his uh, fellow synagogue members, fellow Jewish uh, Sanhedrin members, and said, shouldn't we at least hear him out before we convict him? And they jumped all over him. And then this. This is all we hear about, uh, about Nicodemus. Uh, in John 19, he is here with Joseph of Arimathea. And they take the body of Jesus down, not only becoming ceremonially unclean by being uh, connected with a dead body, but putting a target on their own backs as being those who would sympathize uh, with this one that the Jewish leaders had convicted and had crucified. They bury him in the tomb, and the Romans come along, and Matthew even records uh, a special guard at the end uh, of Matthew 27 when he says, um, uh, sir, they went to Pilate and said, We remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made more secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And what all of that does is it only adds more credibility to the story of the resurrection. And that's the story that we get to talk about on Thursday at 4 p.m. Let's close this study with prayer. Father, you loved us so much. John 3.16 tells us that you gave your son. Jesus loved us so much that he endured all of these horrible, horrible things 
for us. You have said in your word that some might be willing to die for righteous people, but you have shown us your love and demonstrated it in the highest form that while we were still sinners, Christ went through all of this and died for us. And so, Father, we praise you for that. We're ashamed of it, but we're so very, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. God bless. I'll see you Thursday.